Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Use it. It's the only means by which we can know you and really know ourselves. Speak, teach, instruct, correct, exhort us today through the preaching of your word that we might see the glory of Christ and truly find he is our hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. So as many of you uh, know and remember, uh, we have prayed throughout the year for Andrew Brunson, a Presbyterian minister who with his wife served in Turkey for nearly 25 years and almost two years ago was arrested. Um, he went in for a what he thought was a routine government office visit to receive what he had hoped would be a permanent visa. Uh, he was met with an arrest, ended up in jail and was not released for nearly two years. Shortly after his arrest, there was a coup in Turkey, and he became a very useful pawn in the hands of leaders. And so it was only just recently, uh, a matter of weeks ago really, that he was finally released and allowed to return uh, back to the U.S. Unfortunately, he will no longer be able to serve in Turkey, uh, but the Lord is sovereign even over that. This passage starts with Paul saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. And we might think, if we really stop and think about what that means, what in the world? What is Paul talking about? Did Paul have this pie-in-the-sky kind of view of his sufferings? I mean, he is in a prison after all, and this wasn't the Holiday Inn. But he doesn't give us all the details of what that looks like. He just tells us that he rejoices. And we certainly know that it was a difficult situation. And so this week I read an article about Andrew Brunson, and I'm going to read a piece of it. I'm not going to read the whole article, just a piece of it to you, but I encourage you to read it uh, if you have the chance. It's, uh, World Magazine published it. Uh, it's on their website. He's going to be the Daniel of the Year. He's already been announced. They give a Daniel of the Year award, so he's going to be in that article or that journal uh, issue of the magazine. So if you subscribe to it, I put some copies of it out in the narthex. If you don't uh, have access to the internet, you can grab one. I encourage you to read it. Listen to what is accounted in this article. He said, "Sometimes it's harder to live for God than to die for God." He said that following his release and homecoming. He said, I would have rather been in heaven than in prison. True honesty. Throughout the ordeal, Brunson had no assurance he would be set free. He lost 50 pounds during his first year. In letters to his family, he wrote candidly of his fear and brokenness. 
He faced charges that could mean 35 years in prison, the equivalent of, for him, as a 50-year-old, a life sentence. In that darkness, Brunson said he made a decision. I would keep talking to God and running after him. I would be a living martyr. When it came time to defend himself in the courtroom before Turkish judges and international press corps in a watching world, Brunson, in the face of death, challenged authorities and made candid professions of Christian faith. He said, I'm an innocent man on all these charges. I reject them. I know why I'm here. I'm here to suffer in Jesus' name. Brunson struggled to recall books by others who suffered for their Christian faith, wanting to remember how they counted it all joy. He said, I wasn't filled with joy. I was actually really broken. He said, I found the Bible dry. It wasn't feeding me. The first year of his imprisonment, he was full of fear and grief over the uncertainties. He suffered over separation from his family and from Christian fellowship. If I'd been let out after the first year, I'd have been lying on the floor, curled in a fetal position with PTSD, Brunson confessed. It was the second year God started to rebuild me. Brunson said he was helped by the writing of Richard Wormbrand, the voice of the martyr's founder who spent time in prison in Romania. Wormbrand, in solitary confinement, and remember, Brunson is a Presbyterian, just keep that in mind. Wormbrand, in solitary confinement, read Matthew 5, 10 to 12 every day, and he danced. Brunson began taking himself to a corner of his crowded cell every day to dance, reciting those same verses. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. I was not rejoicing, but I did it as an act of obedience. It wasn't pretty. People thought it was weird, but I would dance as Wormbrand danced. Now, we might have a hard time getting our minds around that, including the dancing part, as Presbyterians. (laughs) But think of what it meant in that context to rejoice in suffering. Don't glance over, gloss over, pass those words by too quickly when Paul says, I rejoiced, I rejoice in my suffering. He adds to that, for your sake, speaking to the Colossians, and then says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You may think it's hard to understand how he would rejoice in his suffering. You may think it's even harder to understand what he means by that statement, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And since it's a really tough passage of Scripture, we'll just skip it, and Zach will meet with anyone afterwards to explain um, what that means. I'm kidding. Um, Let's look at at what this this passage means. It's important for us to understand. First, The word lacking in English can have different connotations, different implications. If you think about it, the word lacking can mean that something is insufficient. I won't ask for a raising of hands, but if you have ever, or let's just say you know someone who has ever bounced a check, what is the message that you get from the bank? That your account lacked sufficient funds or you had insufficient funds. The funds were inadequate to meet the need of the check that you wrote. But something can also be lacking in that it's not complete. And you may say, well, really, what's the deal? What's the nuance? Well, the idea with the check is that it's just simply inadequate and your check bounced. And the idea with something that is not complete 
such as if you were in school and you lacked the credit hours to graduate this semester, the, by implication, you would graduate next semester or the following semester when you finished that. And it's this implication, really, that Paul has in mind, that what is lacking here is not a completeness and sufficiency, but what is lacking here is the actual number of afflictions. That is, afflictions will continue in this life. Afflictions will continue beyond the cross. If you think of the cross and the resurrection, afflictions could have ended there. Suffering could have ended there, but thanks be to God it didn't, because that would have been the end of the story. We wouldn't be a part of the family of God. That's part of understanding it, but it doesn't explain it all. So we need to look further. We know from other passages of Scripture that Paul certainly is not teaching an insufficiency of the atonement. We have already seen just in the first chapter of Colossians that Christ's atonement was not lacking anything. He's speaking here of suffering, not atonement, but let me just make that clear. Christ's atonement is more than sufficient. It is, I mean, it's, sufficient is sufficient, but it's more than sufficient. It is more than is necessary because of who he is. Hebrews 7.27, He has no need like those high priests to offer, he being Jesus, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and for those of his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then what we read, well, we read 1 Peter 1 this morning, but 1 Peter 3, he goes on, for Christ also suffered once for sins. It was complete. And I think my favorite account in Scripture that captures the completeness was when Jesus was on the cross and his final words were, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So Paul is clearly not teaching that the atonement was lacking or that Paul was adding anything to the finished work of Christ. Third, the sufferings as Christians who are the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ, and the sufferings of Christ himself because it is his body, they are the sufferings of Christ himself because it is his body. We share in his sufferings and he shares in our sufferings. Our sufferings become his sufferings. Consider the words of Jesus to Paul when he met him on the road to Damascus. What did he say to him? His name, Saul at the time. Saul, Saul, what? Why are you persecuting me? And what was Saul's response? Who are you? Okay, how was Saul persecuting Jesus whom he did not know? Because he was persecuting Jesus' people. He was persecuting the body of Christ. And so in that, he was persecuting Christ. The union that is ours in Christ that brings us salvation also brings us suffering. 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we also share abundantly in comfort too. It's not something we talk about a lot. We're called to share in His suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, We're afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We share in Christ's sufferings and He in ours by our union with Him. 
let me be clear about this. Again, our suffering, our suffering for Christ, our suffering in general, our sharing in His suffering does not add anything to the sufficiency of Christ's work. We could say that our, work, our suffering is not qualitative, but quantitative in that suffering continues. In God's sovereignty, He foreordained that suffering would continue. Like I said, it could have ended at the cross, but it didn't. It continues. I want you to know that it's for a reason, and God uses it. It's not because He is being mean or vindictive or punishing us or anything of the sort. All I said this last week, all of God's wrath fell on His Son. That is part of the beauty of the gospel. He doesn't save any for us. Now, we don't understand that because have any of us ever done that? I mean, think of it for those of you who are parents or if you are uh, in authority in a workplace environment. I mean, even if we say we're being gracious, we know in our hearts we're still vindictive. We still want to get somebody if they do something to us. And God is not like that at all. Suffering works and serves a purpose. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction, think of that, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds, knowing that your detesting of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. And that steadfastness, let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. That's what Paul's getting at here. And that's what he expresses in verse 28. It's maturity, another word for it. Suffering produces fruit. Now, we can understand this when we go and we work the soil, when we go to the gym and work our bodies, when we put effort into anything. We know intrinsically that, that good things, the fruit that we long for, takes work. It takes effort. It takes toil and agonizing and struggle. And God is doing the same thing in us using suffering. We, the body of Christ, then become witnesses to the world not only of His salvation, but also of his suffering. This is what Paul's getting at when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking. Now, we don't like to talk about the suffering component as much. Like I said, we like to talk about salvation. I mean, think about it when you came to faith. Uh, is your testimony that someone came up to you and said, come to Christ and suffer? No. Most people have something like, um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or come to Jesus and he'll handle all your problems. I mean, isn't that what most of us heard? But consider how God, before the creation of the world, how He decided to send His Messiah, the one who would save His people from their sins. What would the Messiah look like? We can look throughout the Old Testament and see that the Messiah, although one day would be a reigning king, would not first come as a reigning king, but as a suffering servant. And there's no place where that's captured more clearly than Isaiah 53. And if you've never read Isaiah 53, I would encourage you to look at that and to consider it. It's so easy for us to take and look back and see how that describes Jesus. People at that time, Paul talks about it, it was a hidden, something hidden, the mystery hidden for ages. They couldn't really see it. 
But listen to how it describes him. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's how God decided to save the world through his son, Jesus. How would we expect not to suffer? When Jesus rose from the dead, he met with his disciples on a number of occasions. Luke 24 recounts one of those experiences where he went and met them on the beach and they ate together. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Christ came to suffer. He came to suffer and to die. And we too, by being joined with Him in faith, can expect that we will too suffer. We come to Him in death. Spiritually dead, we're called to die to ourselves, to lay our lives down. Illustration and parable after parable is given of death leading to life. All these signs, or all these these sufferings are then signs. Not just to us that we are in union with Christ, but they also become a testimony to the world around us. If you look throughout the Old Testament and other Jewish literature, you will find that the image of birth pangs are there to describe, usually in apocalyptic literature, to describe what is to come. That there would, the good things would come through pain. And I realize I can get in trouble using this as an illustration because I'm not a mother, but I understand that birth is suffering for the mother. Yet the glory of the child surpasses the pain. That, I've, I, again, I, I could get in trouble, but I've heard enough mothers say this that I think I can say it. The joy of the child is worth the suffering of birth. Doesn't mean that it wasn't painful, that it wasn't crazy, excruciating, and so forth, but the joy that comes from that child was worth it. And Paul describes that in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this is what... Paul's thrust is in this passage. That all of this suffering leads us to hope, and hope has a name. His name is Jesus. The hope of glory. Christ in you. 
In verse 25, Paul begins describing the stewardship that was given to him. And the idea of stewardship is not that he was given a task, but a, a, an incredible responsibility. And he kind of outlines that in verses 28 and 29, proclaiming, warning, or correcting, teaching, presenting everyone mature. He described toil and struggle, that there was great difficulty in this. He had this multifaceted role of stewardship. The stewardship was of a mystery, but notice that the work, the toil, the struggle was not in his own strength. He says with all his energy, in verse 29, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's reminiscent of Philippians 2 where it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we see Paul highlight that God was doing this all along. In verse 25, it was from God. In verse, later in the same verse, given to me, revealed in verse 26. God chose to make known, verse 27. He powerfully works in me, verse 29. It is God at work in and through Paul with the resurrection power of Jesus to labor and toil as he stewards this great mystery, this hope of glory that he refers to. And then in verse 25, I know I'm jumping around, but just we're, we're, we're almost there. The stewardship of this mystery involves making the Word fully known. That's where it all came out, was in the Word. Revealed, of course, in the person of Jesus who was the Word. But now Paul's responsibility, his task, what has been given to him, is to make the Word of God fully known. And this is what he's given his life to. And this isn't just for Paul or for apostles or just for ministers. We may not all be teachers, but we're all called to make disciples. We may not all be counselors, but we're all called to correct and exhort. We may not all be preachers, but we're all given the great commission to make the good news of Jesus known. So we all have a part in this stewardship. And of course, the heart, the heart of it is making the Word of God fully known. We are to be people, men and women of the Word, to know it, to understand it, to let it indwell us, to fill us, to drive us, to correct us to show us how to live. And then in verse 26, we see the mystery hidden for ages. A whole sermon could be preached on this alone. We've already looked back at Isaiah 53, and we saw how it was hidden there all along that the Messiah would come to suffer and die. And then we looked at Luke 24 where Jesus explained, everything written about me, it was there in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, was to be fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. It was there all along and is now today revealed. And then in verse 27, we see that it's not only a salvation for the nation of Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. This is good news for us, right? We're included. We're now a part of the people of God. All of the walls that had been built up over time, the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, torn down in Christ. Think of the walls of the temple, the walls that were designed to keep the Gentiles out, torn down. And even the wall of the Holy Holies, giving access to the saints of God, to, or, uh, for the saints of God, to the very throne of God, to God Himself. But notice it's not just access, he says, that we get to God's presence. Christ actually comes and indwells us. That's the great mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's that God comes to choose to dwell in us. What an incredible mystery. That union that we now have in Christ is what we see in this table that's before us today. That we are a part of the vine. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We get all of our nourishment from the vine. 
that we're a part of, to abide in that in order to produce fruit. Here we have ordinary things, bread, wine, that God then takes and makes extraordinary. It's not magical, but there's great mystery in this meal. He uses these means of grace to affect our senses, to then affect our hearts. We taste these things. We smell them. We feel the crunch in our teeth or the swish in our mouth. We feel it going into our stomachs. Not to satisfy physical hunger. We'd have to have larger portions if that was the purpose, right? It's not the purpose. The purpose is to feed us spiritually, to give us Christ Himself. He's saying to you today through this, this, this table, I am in you. I am the hope of glory. So come to this table to discover that hope of glory if you are by faith in Christ. And if you are not, then don't come to it. But consider the claims of Christ. Consider who He says He is and what He says that He's accomplished, what the Word of God says that He's done. That He has satisfied the wrath of a holy God on your part, that if by faith you trust in Him, you can now know God for who He is and be called a child of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the hope of glory for us, would you cause our hearts to get that today, to understand it, that we who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And not just near, we have been joined in. We are now in union with you and you are in us. What a great mystery. What a great glory. Would you help our minds to understand this? And then, Lord, would you affect change in our lives as a result of this, leading us to live for you, pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would use this table now to nourish us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.